0: You're tuned into 90.7 FM K A L X Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson and this is The Graduates, the Interview Talk Show, where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today I'm joined by <laughs> biologist and ecologist Helen Kirchin uh, from the Department of Integrated Biology here on UC Berkeley campus. Welcome, Helen.
1: Hi, Tesla.
0: Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for yeah. being a shining personality the you know in this morning. Am I? Yeah. I can see it on your face. I can hear it in your
1: voice. I'm excited. I'm excited.
0: Awesome. And I assume you're excited because we're going to talk about science. Yeah, science. Excellent. Well, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit more about what you're interested in scientifically? Okay.
1: Well, I am an ecologist, um, which means that I am interested in organisms and how they relate to other organisms and to their environment. And specifically, I am interested... um, at least the research that I'm working on now, is concerned with how the physical space that organisms occupy affects their um, ability to grow and maintain their populations. So I'm interested in how they move across landscapes and how the areas that are available for them to move affect their population growth.
0: So... I could, just from listening to that, think that maybe you were talking about humans, right, and this idea that, like, we live in cities and we go around the world, but you're actually talking about a very different organism.
1: Yeah, so the work that I'm doing now, I use bacteria, um, which are small, single-celled Organisms, but the like larger theories that I'm interested in are sort of like could be applied to the movements of of any organisms, possibly including humans.
0: So when you say organism, that refers to something that's alive, right? Yeah. So can you tell us more about what bacteria are?
1: Sure, sure. So bacteria are um, very small, microscopic single-celled organisms you know in the same ways that humans take in food and use energy and move around and have a habitat bacteria also take in food use energy move around a habitat it's just on a much much um, smaller scale but I think people are often surprised there you know bacteria are very diverse um, they live in a lot of different habitats pretty much like every habitat um, on earth has got bacteria of some kind living in it and they are especially wild in that they they live in some really crazy habitats you know they live in places um, that are very very hot or very very salty or have very noxious noxious environments for for other organisms um, bacteria can can live in a lot of those places um, and not only can they live in those places but there are species of bacteria that can only live in some of those like very inhospitable places bacteria are really cool
0: so we're, ta- we're talking maybe like deep sea vents or, sure yeah. yeah
1: deep sea vents Antarctica um, yes yep ice hot springs Um, you know like the mud cool mud pot pictures you see in places like Yellowstone they live um, there all over the place. Inside of other organisms, so inside pretty much all animals, there are um, communities of these bacteria, many, many different species of bacteria um, that have both positive and, and negative effects on the organisms that they live with. Um, they live inside plants. So there are very, very important groups of bacteria called nitrogen-fixing bacteria that take atmospheric nitrogen and turn it into a form of nitrogen um, that plants can use. And those bacteria live inside, like the they're so important to the plants that the plant's make special little, they're called nodules, on their roots um, for those bacteria to live in. Um, and they have a sort of uh, mutually beneficial relationship um, that has evolved over many, many thousands of years.
0: Okay. So here's a question that's probably outside of your expertise, but I'll ask because, <laughs> you know, maybe there's people out there wondering, so if they can live in all these crazy places on Earth, do we ever find them outside of Earth, like in um, outer space?
1: How far from Earth would you, I mean... Not outer space. I mean, I think you find them in maybe like the upper atmosphere of the earth. This is definitely getting way outside my field of expertise. And I should say, I'm not, I'm not, re- I'm not like a bacteriologist and I'm not, a, I'm not, I don't really study like the biology of bacteria. I use bacteria as a model organism to study movement across landscapes. So, like the actual intricacies of like bacterial like respiration and movement are not things that I know virtually anything we
0: would probably know if they were out there because then we would say we found life outside of earth right probably yeah okay okay sorry that was a tough one um but they're crazy that's what i've learned and they must have been around for a really long time
1: yeah they're you know probably some of the first life on earth um
0: awesome okay uh so i can't imagine that you like were a five-year-old being like, I love bacteria, although many five-year-olds like to play around uh, in the mud or other places. Parents might think there's a lot of bacteria (laughs) that are dangerous. But how did you get interested in bacteria?
1: Um, So for me, uh, like I said, I use bacteria as a a study organism um, more because of the the broader questions that I'm interested in, than because I'm like inter- interested in bacteria themselves, and my my background is really in uh, plant ecology, um, and so I really got into biology really not until after I left college. Didn't really know what I wanted to do exactly when I finished college. You know, I had taken a lot of biology classes, but I wasn't really sure like how that was going to turn into a career. But I knew I really liked to be outside, and I really wanted to to work outside. Um, and so what I did for about the next like three or four years after college um, was to just work as a technician on like a bunch of different field biology projects, mostly for graduate students, collecting data and do, doing whatever work I could um, find in that sort of area, mostly for, on like three to nine month projects. Um, and so I and I did all kinds of stuff. So my first job after college um, was working for a graduate student at Kansas State University, trapping and um, radio tracking uh, greater prairie chickens in tall grass Prairie in eastern Kansas. What um, is a
0: greater prairie chicken?
1: Uh, it's a, a big wild chicken. Um, and they're really, really cool. They're like amazing birds. You can, I guess you can't see the shape that I'm making on the radio, but like about the size of like a. Big football, watermelon, yeah, big watermelon-sized birds, Um, and they're very um, rare. Their species is, you know, threatened by habitat loss. And they live in um, this very particular habitat type called the tall grass prairie in eastern Kansas, um, which is also um, quickly disappearing. But when you see beautiful, you know, pictures of that part of the country that are rolling hills covered in tall grasses, that's tall grass prairie. And it's like very lovely habitat.
0: OK, so crazy giant chickens. That's, crazy giant chickens. That's not bacteria. That's not bacteria, yeah. no. that That can't be what got you interested in. Bacteria, then Crazy no, no, no. <laughs> so I, I,
1: so I did a bunch of jobs, um, sort of like that, where um, I worked on some prairie chicken projects. I worked on some uh, sage grass projects, which are similar birds. Um, in a different part of the country, I did some uh, vegetation work. I did some uh, desert tortoise work. And all of these projects had a large vegetation component. Um, so I did a lot of plant identification and looking at plants and a lot of botany um, and eventually decided that I wanted to uh, go back to school and get my master's and I went to Humboldt State University um, in Northern California for my master's. And what I did there was a project, a demographic project, looking at a rare plant called the Lassex lupin, which is a very, very rare plant. It's basically restricted to a single square kilometer on the top of this little area, the uh, Lassix Geological and Botanical Area, which is not to be confused with Mount Lassen, which people are really familiar with. The Lassix are a little more to the west, and they're a very geologically diverse little area with lots of different soil types and lots of um, botanical diversity as well. Um, And so the Lassix Lupin is this uh, very rare plant. There are less than... 400 reproductive individuals. Um, They all grow on top of this mountain, Mount Lassic, um, with a couple, like maybe uh, 20 or so individuals on the neighboring mountain, and that's it. Um, And so my project was, um, when I started this project, um, the Forest Service and Fish and Wildlife Service had been monitoring this plant for about 10 years. They had 10 years of data on the population size, um, and the people who worked up there um, were very concerned that seed predation by small mammals, rodents, was causing, uh, that basically these rodents were eating all the seeds on these plants, um, and that none of the seeds were able to, to germinate and grow into new plants. And they were really concerned um, about the effect that these rodents were having. So they were putting cages over all of these plants during the summer to try and keep this from happening. And so the um, sort of impetus for my project was to figure out, um, one, if the rodents were having this massive effect that people um, thought they were, um, and two, if the um, cages were actually effective um, in stopping that. And what I found um, was that, yes, they the rodents were having a really strong effect on the population growth. They were really making the difference between the population um, growing really robustly and declining, and that the cages um, are very effective in keeping that from happening. So yeah, that was my master's project. I feel like I've gotten very far afield. No, no. Question. Th- these <laughs> are all the questions
0: I had was, you know, you know well, yeah, your path. So, okay. We'll oh, yeah. Move to plants.
1: Right. So, okay. So I did that project um, and finished my master's, realized I wanted to get a PhD and and what I was really left with at the end of that project, left with thinking about, um, was like, here was this, like, amazing, beautiful, rare species on the top of this mountain. Like, how did it get there? And how how did it end up being isolated like that? And how does being isolated like that Um, affect its future. And it really left me thinking about sort of the complexity of landscapes and how those landscapes affect population growth. And so many winding months later, what I sort of ended up with was this project where I was thinking about um, specifically dispersal corridors, so like migration pathways that organisms can take to get from one part of their population to another. How does their specific position on the landscape affect the ability of those populations to grow and um, to recover from disturbances. And it's a very difficult question to approach experimentally. When you're talking about something like a, a complex landscape, you know, you could look out across a, a mountain range or a field or or anything. And there are many, many ways that that landscape varies. You know, there are um, maybe little patches of different resources or habitats like dotted around and those patches vary um, in their size and their shape. They vary with their like distance to each other. They vary in the ways, you know, the pathways that organisms could take to get from spot to spot. And depending on your specific question of, of, of interest, the way you approach that question experimentally is gonna going to vary a lot.
0: Can I interject for one second? So, one question I would have is so, when talking about these different pathways and like distribution, this is definitely going to depend on what kind of organism you're thinking Mm -hmm. about, right? Because, like, birds, for example, Mm -hmm. are going to get a lot further than plants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I guess maybe it's not a question. It's an observation. Well, no,
1: that's like a that's definitely a question about like the interaction between organisms and their environment. You know, different organisms move. in different ways. Um, So when you're thinking about something like plant movement, you're thinking about things like seeds or maybe pollen, which could, depending on their size, maybe move in the air. I mean, pollen definitely moves in the air, but seeds maybe could be airborne. They might be traveling on, or they might be traveling on animals um, that maybe are moving much farther distances, rolling down hills, that sort of thing. But in any case, the difficulty that I was finding is that what I was really concerned with was how do how does the, the way that these dispersal corridors are spread across the landscape affect um, population growth? Um, and of course, as a scientist and an empirical scientist who wants to, you know, be generating data. I'm really concerned with with replication, with being able to do the same experiment multiple times, or to have many sort of trial replicates of the same system. Um, and when you're thinking about these spatial questions, that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, if you're interested, you know you don't get replicate mountain ranges necessarily. You don't get um, replicate you know rivers. You don't necessarily. You aren't able to really replicate spatial heterogeneity in that way. Um, And so what I wanted was uh, an experimental system that I could reproduce over and over again and do many, many experiments with. Um, And so... Bacteria are great organisms to, to use for that kind of experiment because they're very small. Um, they're easy to grow in the lab. You can have a bunch of them in, in a little spot. And they do, they do move. Um, my bacteria are flagellated. They have little um, extensions on the back of um, their cells that they use to, to move through um, a liquid environment. Um, kind of
0: like a sperm, right? because all they also have a really big flagella attached. I mean, yeah. different do, different do, do idea, that, but yeah, that's what it is to swim. Swim, swim. Yeah,
1: yeah, swim, swimming along. Yeah.
0: So, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the graduates here on Calex in Berkeley. My name is Tesla. Today I'm speaking with biologist and ecologist Helen Kirkchen and uh yeah, telling us about her work on everything from like wild chickens to <laughs> exotic lupines and uh <laughs> And and bacteria. So I guess one question I have is when people hear about experiments and science, mm-hmm. right, a lot of times they think about like mice in cages. Mm-hmm. Or um, I guess my question is, why is experimentation the approach that you chose? Mm-hmm. Like for me, for example, I don't do experiments. I mm-hmm. do observation science. Mm-hmm. Um, but why was experimentation what you wanted to pursue?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I would say, you know, observational science and experimental science you know, and descriptive kinds of work um, are all super important to the scientific process, but they bring in very different kinds of data. And uh, observational science is usually great at doing things like finding patterns and and um, observing and, and documenting those patterns. But a lot of what I am really interested in are the processes that produce those patterns. Um, and in order to try and figure out things causal causal mechanisms behind the sort of biological patterns um that we see on earth um, experimentation is a like a really great and really direct way um to get at causal mechanisms. And so in an experiment, um, your goal when you design an experiment is to control the organism and the setup and the experimental design um, very, very tightly so that everything is the same except the one thing that you're manipulating um, to see what its effect is. And so when you're doing something observational, many, many things are varying and you're trying to, to sort of capture and describe all or some portion of that variation, um, and there's no way to really control that background noise. In an experiment, you keep the background really the same, and you are the person who is manipulating that one thing that you're really interested in, and that's a very powerful tool um, for figuring out why do what they do.
0: And I guess people might not realize how creative scientists are, but you had to be especially creative when you came to designing your experiments, right? Because you are technically, as we all know, uh, an inventor. Don't make fun of me. I'm not making fun <laughs> of you. You are. I wish I could say I was an inventor. Hey, my namesake might be, but I am not. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you've invented for your dissertation? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, what I was really interested in, like I feel like I've said a billion times now, but what I was really interested in are uh, is the availability of spatial corridors across landscapes. Um, and once I figured out that I wanted to work with bacteria in the lab, I knew that I could, could do experiments that involve many, many dispersal corridors um, in a in a very small area. Um, but it was hard for me to figure out exactly how. Um, and what I ended up inventing um, are these little like bacteria culture devices that are plastic um, and are basically a bunch of little wells that are filled with a liquid nutrient broth. So it's a liquid that has, you know, all the sort of um, nutrients that uh, bacteria need to live, and running in between those little wells are um, these long, skinny corridors that the bacteria can um, swim through from well to well. And so, in a, about a the size of a three by five, like index card size area, I can have about uh, ninety six of these little wells um, connected by. So far, the most I've done is like one hundred and seventy six corridors, um, and they are about one hundred and fifty microns in diameter so a, a single bacterium I should say has a, a diameter of about um, one to two microns at least the the species that I work with um, so this is about the equivalent of you god I should have come up with a standard of comparison before I uh, started this description, but it would be like you maybe floating down the Mississippi River or something. Um, These are like pretty big corridors in comparison to the size of um, the bacteria. Um, And and I can manipulate the position of these within my, my devices on a very, very fine scale. And that allows me to ask questions like, what happens when dispersal corridors are spread very evenly across the landscape. So for example, when every well in one of my devices has the same number of corridors attached to it, the same number of um, in and outflows, compared to a setup maybe where there are a couple of hub wells that are extremely highly connected to the rest of the network, but maybe most of those wells are only connected to one or two of their neighbors. And thinking about connectivity issues um, like that is really what I'm most interested in right now.
0: So if you can't just order this device from a catalog, Mm -hmm. how did you make it?
1: So um, it's gone through a lot of different kind of iterations at first. So I I make it in layers. Um, So there's basically a big thick piece of plastic on the top and bottom that hold the whole thing together. It's screwed together. And in between are um, alternating layers of very thin plastic that have these corridors cut in them and silicone rubber gaskets to make the whole thing um, watertight. Um, And what I do is I, I'm working, actually, the UC Berkeley campus has this really great um, new-ish space, I guess it's been around for maybe like a year, called uh, Jacobs Hall. Um, That's like an interdisciplinary, I don't really know what to call it, a spot that you can sign up, you can get a pass to work up there, and they have all kinds of really great equipment, um, like laser cutters and 3D printers, um, and I've been doing the this latest iteration that I'm working on up there because they have these really cool little tabletop mills. And so I've been milling these pieces out of uh, polycarbonate um, plastic. um, And then I take them back to the lab, clean them up. Um, You know, they can't have any little like flakes of plastic left on them or anything. So it doesn't take much to get in the way of you know a one micron bacterium um so clean clean them all up and assemble them in the lab um, and then they can go in i use a um, piece of equipment a very common piece of equipment um in microbiology called an autoclave um, which is like a enormous pressure cooker um, that gets very very hot and very high pressure and can sterilize any kind of equipment that you want to use in the lab so i take the whole device put it in the the autoclave to get rid of any bacteria that i that are not my the bacteria that I'm working with. Um, and then I fill the device with the sterile nutrient broth um, and seed it with bacteria and then do experiments. And then magic. Magic, yeah. yeah. So I get to use all kinds of cool equipment, I guess, is the answer to your question. I get to use these mills, other parts of this setup I cut on a laser cutter, which uses a laser to cut material. I think
0: lasers might be one of the most popular and frequently used pieces of equipment that I've I've heard from people on the show. All different fields. Yeah. People like lasers.
1: They're cool. They're they're pretty amazing. Yeah. And it's pretty awesome too. like before I started this project, you know, I'm not an engineer by any stretch of the imagination. And it's absolutely amazing to me how far some of this technology has come where I can just design the thing that I want to make on the computer. With the, I mean, I have average computer skills. I'm pretty, you know, I do computer things for my work, but I'm not a computer scientist. And I can design this on the computer, and the the workflow is so straightforward that I can turn that into an an actual real piece of equipment, you know, in the matter of like a day. That's totally incredible. Yeah.
0: So, do you have any uh, results you want to share? Are they a top secret? Or because they can be top secret, it's fine. But I thought I'd ask. <laughs>
1: Uh they're not top secret. I don't know that they're that interesting yet. I'm pretty much just getting sort of past the stage, the the methodological stage. The inventing. The inventing stage. stage. Yeah. yeah. So I've got sort of some very preliminary results, but um I it's think okay. maybe. We stage, can yeah,
0: you know, we can save that. Yeah, um yeah. we're actually running out of time really? here. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, I know. It goes by fast. Wow. But uh so I definitely have a couple more questions okay. that I want to get to. One is what do you have to say to people who think that bacteria are, like, the worst thing in the world? Oh, my
1: God. <laughs> I say, change your mind right now. Bacteria are amazing. Um, And, you know, we wouldn't have the world that we have today without bacteria. They're in every part of our, you know, food. Bacteria are key, you know, in the production of things, delicious things like cheese and yogurt. Bacteria, like I said, are... You know really important ecologically nitrogen fixing bacteria that live in plants um are really key for turning some uh you know nitrogen sources that would be otherwise inaccessible into you know biologically usable forms bacteria are are wonderful and they're everywhere and they're super important and they're definitely certainly are pathogenic bacteria um and you know disease causing um bacteria but that is not all that's out
0: there. There's no. some pathogenic people too. Sure. You know? Yeah. That doesn't turn us against <laughs> people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No. Okay. Awesome. And then I know you're also, you know, you're one of the grad students I know that's really involved in outreach and really involved in the campus community. And I was just wondering if you wanted to say anything about why you do that sort of stuff.
1: Why I do that kind of stuff. Um, I guess to me, Yeah, I love science and I love um, being a scientist. And one of the things that I love about being a scientist is interacting with a community of scientists. Um, And I think if you find that community valuable and worthwhile, even just from a selfish point of view, it's important to contribute to keeping that community um, happy and running and um, doing the things that it needs to do. And that can be, you know, simple things like organizing social events around campus, which I think are really important for, you know, people getting together to talk about their ideas. I think so much of science happens over a cup of coffee or a beer and, you know, making sure that that community exists is really important to me. And, you know, I've been our um, departments, one of our department's delegates to the Graduate Assembly for a while. And the Graduate Assembly is, you know, a really important organization um, as far as um, making sure that advocacy for graduate students happens on campus. I think it's really important. Um, I'm also the co-chair of cal queer grads um, which is uh, an lgbt organization for you know queer and trans um, graduate students on campus and that's really important to me i think it's that's another area where community is really important valuable did i answer your question yeah no
0: definitely and you used a lot of examples too so we know that you're you know you mean it (laughs) you're you've got the data to back up yeah so um uh yeah. Well, I mean, we're pretty much out of time. So okay. any last words for the audience? Anything you really want the public to know? You know, science is cool. Science
1: is cool. Science is amazing. Um, it's nice to see how excited you are about it. Too. Is it?
0: Yeah, especially because, you know, you don't think of bacteria as like the most exciting organism, oh. but
1: you, you think so of them. so amazing. Yeah. No, I think. OK, so I have a last thing to say, maybe. Is that how amazing is it that you can have a whole experimental population of millions of organisms on a device that's the size of a three by five card? I think um, bacteria, in addition to being like a amazingly cool like biological organisms, are also amazingly cool experimental tools to be used to understand the biology and the you know workings of all kinds of population growth and dynamics
0: yeah so I'm maybe uh, people should look into him again give them another chance yeah. read up on bacteria learn yeah. a little bit about awesome and just for people out there bacteria is plural, right? And bacterium is singular. Okay. So we can all sound like we know what we're talking about. I try my best (laughs) to sound that way. You did an excellent job. You (laughs) convinced me for sure. Okay. This has been another episode of The Graduates here on KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson. Today, I was joined by biologist and ecologist Helen Kirchin in the Department of Integrated Biology here on campus talking about her path From, uh, you know, general biology to a very specific question involving bacteria and, you know, what it takes to be an inventor and how, you know, hey, you might not think that that's where your career is going. But um, with the resources and the creativity and the ideas, you can come up with really cool stuff and then study millions of organisms on a three by five index card space. (laughs) Right. So, Very cool stuff. And yeah. Thank you for being here today, Han. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX Berkeley.